Let's look at Acts 6, verses 8 to 15 this morning. Let's pray and then I'll read the text and we'll, we'll look at the, uh, well, it's really the introduction, I suppose, to uh, Stephen's speech, which gets him killed. <laughs> and then we'll look at the rest of it next time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for uh, the beauty of the body of Christ, um, sinners saved by grace, gathered together um, to worship and to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have in um, gathering and proclaiming and learning and evangelizing and praying, Lord, uh, for your name to be hallowed. Pray that you'll guide our time this morning for your glory, the good of your people, and our worship as you bring the saints in, Lord, um, to fill up this house of worship to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of of an angel. Well, some time has lapsed here um, since Pentecost. We don't know how much time exactly, but uh, most scholars agree that it's no more than a few months, uh, perhaps upward of a year since Pentecost. Um, And we know that soon after Pentecost, there was a wave of uh, persecution And then came a second wave where Peter and John were imprisoned a second time along with the other apostles. And they'd been beaten, they were flogged, they were told not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus, to which, of course, they replied, you know, we must obey God rather than men. And here now in chapter 6, there's another wave of persecution that erupts. Um, the result of which is the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Uh, but we'll see that it never hindered the growth of the church, but only propelled it, didn't it? And we're reminded of what uh, the early church father, Tertullian, later wrote. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Jesus commissioned these men back in chapter 1. He said, you shall receive power 
through the coming of the Spirit, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. That was their commission. That they carried out immediately after the Spirit fell in chapter 2. From the very first day, we know that Peter stood up and he said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Can you imagine that? The Jewish leaders give ear to my words. And he proceeded then to preach Christ. The church began its evangelism. It was very effective. Um, they, They turned the world upside down. And they were incredibly effective. So before we get into this text, let's, by way of reminder, um, we ask, why were they effective? This is a great pattern for us. Number one, because they had unity. They were unified. They were of one heart, one mind. They shared all things in common. And they had, therefore, a very powerful, um, united testimony. That's the first thing uh, that we witness. They also had courage. Okay, they're confronting the world, the religious world, the political world. They don't care. They're proclaiming the truth and accepting persecution uh, is an opportunity, actually, for more boldness. And no church, really, is going to be effective if it's not bold, if it doesn't have courage to stand in the face of uh, worldly opposition, of course with love and with grace, but uh, standing for the truth. So that's another reason, was courage, it was unity, it was courage. Another reason was uh, their involvement. When you're unified, truly unified, typically you'll be engaged, you'll be involved. Um, There are people in the church today who, who make things happen, and there's those in the church that watch things happen, and then there's those in the church who have a no, no idea as to what's happening, unfortunately. <laughs> and the church suffers when, when there's disengagement. So this church was, was engaged. You know, for some in our day, it's enough to drag themselves up out of bed to, just to get to church, let, it, let alone be engaged with the church. But we live in a very consumer-minded age. That wasn't the case here. They were engaged, they were involved, there was no dead weight, and they were also effective in the way they dealt with sin, or at least the way God dealt with sin in the church. Ananias and Sapphira, he strikes them dead. And uh, when, when church isn't, or when, when sin rather isn't dealt with within the church, if it's ignored, it's not going to be that effective. God dealing with sin in the church was so effective that it even bore witness to the unbelieving world, those outsiders. Remember what they said? They held the church, the people of God, in high esteem, but they what? Dared not enter in. They dared not join them, chapter 5, verse 13. But the Lord, it goes on to say, continued to what? Add to the church. Church growth. That's the true church growth movement right there. They weren't really consumed with social issues. There's nothing wrong with uh, social activity um, and that type of thing. But, uh, or, you know, mere community service through the church. They, they, they were consumed 
with confronting the world with truth, the gospel. They knew their priorities. There was unity. There was involvement, gospel-centered discipleship. They were given to preaching and teaching and equipping by way of preaching and teaching. You equip by way of preaching and teaching. This is what they were doing. So they wanted to keep their priorities in place. And with that in mind, when problems arise, you, 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 you uh, move quickly to provide a solution. And of course, we know that the problem was that the Hellenistic Jews were being neglected, the widows, that is, were being neglected um, in the distribution of food. So that was the problem. There were two groups of Jews in this day. There were the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. We went over last time. Um, The Hebraic Jews uh, were a group of people that had maintained um, their dress, had maintained their customs, their languages, and their traditions that went all the way back to their release from Babylonian captivity. The other group uh, were Grecian Jews who from that time had been dispersed throughout the land and were heavily influenced by the Grecian culture in dress and in customs and in language. So those were the the Hellenists, heavily influenced. Um, The land of Greece was known as Hellas, and the Greeks were known as the Hellenes, so this then is the Hellenistic Jews who were being neglected. Uh, The Hebrew Jews, they they did see themselves as being a cut above uh, Hellenists. And that that attitude kind of carried over to uh, the first century church, as we see here. So there's tension, um, complaining involved. And the apostles list seven men of good repute who have Greek names informing us that those seven were Hellenistic Jews. This group of seven. And then he, he, he gives a description, and he, he begins with uh, Stephen. And we see here that uh, he describes his godliness. And he tells us, first of all, back in verse 5, that he was a man full of what? Faith. Full of faith. Now, every believer must have faith, amen? For anyone to be saved, they must have faith. Trust and in belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you, some, some of you um, learned in Sunday school growing up, faith, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all, I take him. Faith. Forsaking all else, Trusting only in the finished work of Jesus Christ, I embrace him. This is faith that saves. Without faith, the Bible says it's impossible to please God. Every true Christian has faith. We're justified, made right with God. We're in a saving relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Even believers with the smallest faith are in. Amen? Mustard seed faith. 
in Christ is saving faith. It's one thing to have faith. It's another thing to have strong, a strong experience of faith. And it's quite another to be full of faith, as this brother's described. He's full of faith. Most of us this morning will uh, willingly admit and say, man, I believe in Jesus. I believe in his word. But we can go on to say, but Lord, help my, help my unbelief. There are times when we struggle. There are times when we doubt. In the midst of all kinds of problems, the complexities of life, we have faith, but we cry out like the man who had the demon-possessed son. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I get a witness. Amen. Good. Amen. Good. Amen. You know, there's those, uh, those seasons in the Christian life where, where God seems to throw a veil um, over the light of his countenance for the sake of increasing our faith. You know, you're a new believer, and it seems as, as though in the providence of God, every corner you turn, wow, that's God's active hand in my life, and you see it and you rejoice. And then there comes that season where you don't see it quite as often. Oh, he's there, though. Amen? That's why we want to encourage young believers when they come to that place. Okay, now you must learn to trust in spite of how you feel. Faith. Assurance of faith can waver. Right? The assurance of our faith can waver in the midst of uh, trouble. So even weak faith is saving faith. Make sure we know that. So long as that faith is rooted in Jesus Christ alone, even the weak must know that they're saved because of the substance of their faith. Right? Not the greatness of their faith, but the substance of their faith. And in sanctification, God increases that faith because he's, he's not done with his divine work in us and through us. So, so long as it's rooted in him, that's salvation. But here's a man who's full of faith. He's full of the assurance of faith. He's ready to forsake all, being full of faith here. And that's exactly what he's going to do in the next chapter. He's going to give his life in proclaiming truth. So to be filled with something means to be consumed with something. Filled Filled with something that preoccupies our thinking. And for that reason, whatever, is, whatever it is that fills you becomes your chief characteristic by which others recognize you and remember of you. This man's full of faith. You know, we recognize certain people as, uh, oh, so-and-so is always, always full of joy. Or full of contentment. Uh, so and so is, is full of benevolence. They're known for their, you know, gracious giving or whatever. You know, a man's reputation precedes him. You know, so and so can be one who's, you know, that guy's full of trouble. <laughs> that guy's full of envy, or worry, or grumbling, or criticism. That's the thing that characterizes them. This is what they're full of. This man's full of faith. 
Verse 5, he was full of faith. It's true faith that joined him to Christ. And faith always begins with proper knowledge. Amen? We have proper knowledge of who God is, who his son is, what his way of salvation is. And not only do we obtain knowledge by hearing, but we grow to believe and trust. That's mental assent. Mental assent to the facts and then trust in the truth. So it's not merely knowing about him, it's about knowing him. And here's a man who knew Christ, he was in Christ, he, he's, he's full of faith, he's full of trust, ever dependent upon the Lord. So this is what characterizes this brother's life. Conversation, I can imagine, dominated by spiritual matters. The truth of God in Christ Jesus. A heart filled with love for God, a heart filled with love of God. Everything else was secondary to this brother. And notice, not only was he filled with, not only was he full, he was full not only of faith, verse 5, but also of the Holy Spirit. Full of faith, full of spirit. And then in verse 8, Luke elaborates and calls Stephen full of grace and power. Full of grace and power. So he had faith in full. As a result, he's full of the Holy Spirit. This brother wasn't a quarter full. It wasn't half full. He's one with Christ. He knows it. He's full of faith. And now... He's empowered by God. Power, baby. The power of God. Full of the Spirit, full of the power. This is all now being made manifest in this setting. Here's the brother. Here's where the church is. This guy is soon to die. And the reason he's soon to die is that he's full of the one they hate. They hate God. They hate Jesus Christ. Verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Okay, This is the apostolic age in which special gifts were distributed by way of the Holy Spirit to those who were preaching the truth, signs of an apostle, known um, throughout the New Testament. Uh, Their message would go out, and then that message was validated by signs, miracles, and wonders. And here through Stephen, this was going on, a man full of grace and power. So imagine what this guy was like. G. Campbell Morgan, a great preacher, um, Westminster uh, Chapel, In London, back in the 1800s, he said of Stephen, with regard to grace and power, he said, grace and power form a striking combination of sweetness and strength merged into one personality. This is Stephen. F.F. Bruce uses the word, this brother had charm. He had a kind of charisma about him. 
The Spirit was doing a work through this man that was very unique. This would be a kind of guy, as it's been said, Stephen, that it would be hard hard to have a falling out with a brother like this. It probably isn't hard to imagine having a falling out with someone like Peter or Paul. But this guy, something about him, he had a unique charm. Full of the Spirit. And and it caused wonder. Signs. Wonder. Signs that point to Christ. And again, as we said, these are certain gifts that they don't exist today. There's no need for signs of an apostle because there are no apostles. Amen? And anyone who says they're an apostle, you tell them that there are no more apostles. They're all in heaven. But even so, greater than all those signs, what does 1 Corinthians say? Greater than all those signs, speaking with tongues of angels and all this type of thing. Greater than all these is love. This is what this brother had. He had it all. Man full of the Spirit. He was a man of good repute, meaning good report. He was above reproach. No valid accusation could be brought against the man. Verse 3, full of the Spirit. So the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit, bears witness to those that he fills. And here's a man full of the Spirit, full of power. They controlled his life, making him blameless. But think about this. Fruit of the Holy Spirit, made manifest, doesn't unconditionally subdue or overturn the malevolent enemies of Christ. They don't sit there and wring their hands and go, oh, look at that sweet brother. What a sweet man. Not at all. Verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So with all of Stephen's outstanding qualities, his character, and his ministry and the power of the Spirit behind the ministry only provoked fierce antagonism from the enemies of Christ. It didn't woo them. And in response, this certain Jewish sects arose in opposition to Stephen. Now, these groups are, are, are thought by some scholars to be a group composed of four distinct synagogues. Along with these freedmen who who were actually descendants of of Jewish slaves, who who they formed their own little little sect. Some believe that. Others say that there's one synagogue in view here made up of people that came in from four places. Take your pick. So Stephen's knowledge is now put into practice, proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the truth of Christ from the scriptures. And Luke describes that that his character now put on display in power of the spirit, meshed meshed with deep understanding of the scriptures and and divine eloquence, if you will, um, by, by power of the spirit, 
did nothing to woo them. But, in verse 10, yet they, his enemies, were unable to cope. Notice this. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, this brother had something that that, that every good speaker needs. Content and delivery. Content and delivery. And they couldn't handle either one of those elements. The two most important facets of spirit empowered preaching is knowledge and passion. If you don't have passion, I don't think you should preach. I mean, you have to say something. You speak the truth. And you've got to say it so people believe it. We trust the Spirit to do that, but if you don't believe it, man, what makes you think anybody else is going to believe it? Witness. Now, this brother had been evidently teaching and preaching in the synagogues. This, this was their custom, expositing scripture. You can imagine Stephen, Stephen coming to a text like Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, reading it and, and then explaining it as Christ having fulfilled it. Can you imagine that, man? Directing them to the reality that Jesus of Nazareth, the one you all crucified, fulfilled these scriptures. It all points to him. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, and then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Smear campaign. Perhaps using bribery Never know. They couldn't handle Stephen because he, he, he won the debate, so to speak. And you know what happens when you lose a debate? If, if you don't have contact tend to win, then you resort to, you know, ad hominem, uh, name calling. You know, your mom's ugly or whatever. Or slander, which is a political tactic. So you want to defame the guy's character. So if we can't beat the brother in a fair debate, let's get him with slander because they can't handle his wisdom. They cannot handle the power of the Holy Spirit in the brother and through the brother. They can't handle his sincerity and his zeal, power, ability. So all the Sanhedrin can do was respond with a, with a mob spirit and do to him what they did to Jesus. False witnesses and an attempt to do away with him. So verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered 
to us. The reality of that, it came in 70 AD, didn't it? When God raised that place to the ground. Through Titus of Rome. So there's something similar about the way the same Sanhedrin court deals with this man as they did with the Lord Jesus. So remember, Luke, this is his second book. First was Luke, the Gospel of Luke. This is his second book, and he wants us to see the connection of his first letter, that there's something very Christ-like about Stephen. His character, his ability, filled with the Spirit. And just as they persecuted his Lord, they will persecute him. So they hire perjurers, liars, to witness against him and accuse him of what? Blasphemy. The same thing they accuse Jesus of. Accused the Lord of blasphemy. If we lived in that day, but by the grace of God, we would do the same thing. By the grace of God, but by the grace of God, we would kill Stephen or applaud at his stoning. And but by the grace of God in our day, we would mock Christ and his followers as well. Amen? It is only grace that saves. That's why you can't reason someone into the kingdom. Is this the Sanhedrin? Took the Spirit of God. Now think about this. Out of all the places of the world, nothing was more sacred to the Sanhedrin than the temple and the law, the Mosaic law, which they twisted and manipulated and just ripped to shreds. But you remember what Jesus said about the temple? When he stood in the temple, he said in three days he'll destroy the temple and in three days he'll raise it up again. You remember that? And Herod's temple by that time it was under construction for 46 years. It's taken 46 years to build this temple and it still wasn't finished. That's why it was so easy to find stones to pick up in the temple court to stone someone. They didn't have rock piles laying around just for stoning. The place was under construction. Still under construction. But Jesus was no doubt speaking about his death and his resurrection because he is the temple. He's the temple. And certain aspects of the temple ministry, the sacrifices and all that were rendered absolutely unnecessary when Christ said, it is finished. And God tears the, the, the curtain in the temple from the holy place to the most holy place from the top to the bottom. Rent asunder as the old King James puts it. It's all done away with. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I will destroy this temple, but it will be rebuilt in three days. He's all the sacrifice we need, amen? You want to come into the holy place? You only come by way of fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's it. If you want to go where the high priest would go once a year, it's by way of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, alone. You want mercy? He is the mercy seat. So Stephen is, is faithfully echoing the teaching of his master. 
That's what he's doing here. That, that, look, we don't have our own message, do we? No, it's his message. And it's his message that, that, that is offensive today as it was in this day. And then verse 15, And then gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I don't think Luke is leading us to ask, hmm, what does the face of an angel look like? Angels are non-corporeal, non-physical beings, right? Yes, an angel can, can become human-like. He can indwell you know, a human body or come on scene uh, as a human. But their spirit... And I think what Luke wants us to ask is a different question, and it's this. Who else in the Bible radiated with a countenance like this? Say it again. Moses, which is really interesting. Because this brother was far from disrespecting the law of Moses. When Moses came down from the mountain with the tablets in his hand, they had to put a veil over that brother's face because Israel could not even look upon him. Because he was reflecting something of the glory of God, having been with God. Stephen is correctly interpreting the law of Moses, that it finds its fulfillment in Jesus and they want to kill him. And then not unlike Moses, his face shines like an angel because he spent time with God and was proclaiming the word of God with power, full of the spirit, full of grace. Power. Now, he's going to go on to declare and to demonstrate that from Old Testament scripture, that Jesus is the Christ of whom you Jews crucified. He's going to go through the whole history of Israel, showing over and over again how they continually turned against the prophets, and now they turned against God's Christ. They killed God's prophets, they killed God's son. And he speaks so convincingly that there's only one response. We're not, and we're, we don't have time to look at it today. They gnash their teeth at him. It's interesting, those described in hell who are cast into outer darkness, what do they do? They gnash their teeth. Who are they gnashing their teeth at? They're gnashing their teeth at God. Hell, in hell there is no, hell has no remedial effect. You don't have a change of view of God once you get to hell. You sin, and without atonement and forgiveness, you go to hell. And you continue to sin for eternity, hating, gnashing one's teeth at God. But not outside the presence of God. Because God is present in hell. The wrath of God is forever present in hell. And they'll gnash their teeth at him forever. And But by grace, we would be gnashing our teeth at him now and without grace forevermore. It's 
talking with a brother last night about our salvation. And he was describing how overwhelmed he is with just the fact, speaking of himself, that I'm saved. Thanking God that I'm just, I'm saved. Not just thanking him for the stuff we have and the stuff we get and the places we live or whatever, but thanking him that I'm saved. And then this brother told me, I love this. He goes, I always think about the Lord coming back. Like, when is he going to come back? He goes, and I think about it more often, the the time I think about it more than any other time is when I'm in the shower. It's like, I almost have to hurry up because the Lord could come back right now. (laughs) Dude, man, that's having an eternal perspective. (laughs) Thankful, man, that we're saved. So next time, we're going to look at this, this ex- extremely significant sermon. And it, it, it's enormously important from the viewpoint of what's known as hermeneutics. Okay? The science of biblical interpretation. Because it provides us with a key to properly understanding both the Old and New Testaments. We're going to hear something about hermeneutics this morning in the sermon. Because a lot of people come to the text we're in with with a framework that they lay over the text. And there's two different frameworks. If you come with a rigid framework and lay it over the particular text of Romans 11, you're going to read into it things that really aren't there. Which we'll look at. The key to proper hermeneutics, there's a key that you have to carry from Genesis to Revelation. That key is Jesus Christ. That's the key to proper hermeneutics. Not the land of Israel, not Israel, or on the other end, covenantalism, hyper-covenantalism, by signs of the covenant. Those, aren't, those are keys that people use. That's the wrong key. The key is Jesus. And man, you'll see it. You see it in his sermon. The key that helps us see how the New Testament builds upon the foundation of the old. So may we, like Stephen, be so full of faith that we can, from Scripture, contend for the faith. Amen? Contend for the faith. Showing the heirs of those with whom we work, uh, live with maybe, (laughs) attend school with, or have family reunions with. Because when we know the scripture, we can testify the scripture. And with that, there's power. Power of the Holy Spirit in declaring that. I think we'll stop there. Fair enough? I don't know how to read people's countenance sometimes. (laughs) What? Fair enough. enough. Questions or comments? Yes, sir.
another way of saying scripture is or solo scriptura is letting scripture interpret scripture let scripture interpret scripture sola scriptura yeah the, 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 the Latin term for scripture alone yeah I, I believe absolutely so I mean Jesus said of himself that the, that, the, that the law and the prophets speak of who? speak of me me I'm the key that unlocks the knowledge of, of scripture the whole panoply of scripture is unlocked with Christ So yeah, we want to look at content wherever we are in the Bible. Always want to look at content. But ultimately, Christ is the fulfillment of all these great and glorious promises. And that's what Stephen's going to shred them with. And they're going to hate it. And they're going to kill him. If you're going to go out anyway, if I was going to go out anyway, if violence is involved, it would be just preaching. It would be preaching. uh, I don't want to really be the recipient of a violent death at the hands of others, but if it's so, then may it be through the preaching of the word would be the way to go. Amen, brother? Amen. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of Stephen, your faithful servant, full of grace, full of the Spirit, full of faith, and full of power. So much so that that his face shone like that of an angel, reflecting um, something, Lord, of, of your glory that only caused the enemies of you to, to gnash their teeth and to stone him, but not before he was done speaking according to your providential will. And we thank you for these things and help us to, to embrace these truths, Lord, for application to our own lives. Thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you for saving us, dispensing, Lord, your abounding, abundant grace to us and through us. As grace recipients, Lord, may we be full of grace showing mercy to others, but never neglecting to proclaim truth, not in our strength, but in the power of your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.